Most of us will, have, will be familiar with the parable of the prodigal son told by Jesus, maybe his most powerful parable, certainly of the love of God. And because of it, it's, it means popularized the word prodigal. We don't use it much anymore, but we think we know what the word means. Um, we probably don't. I think a lot of us think prodigal because we know what happens in the parable of the prodigal son. We think prodigal means something like um, wicked. I mean, because he was a wicked son. But it doesn't mean wicked. It means extravagant, which is why Tim Keller, in his beautiful unpacking of the parable in a little book, titled the book The Prodigal God. can't be the wicked God. It's that God is extravagant, almost wasteful or reckless, which are two other meanings of the word, seemingly, right, in his mercy and love and kindness in bringing us back who don't deserve it. And so that's, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of, of, of world history of us running from God and God making a people for himself and them running from God and being disobedient and getting exiled and never keeping his law. And then he comes in himself. He steps into earth as, as Paul says in Galatians four in the fullness of time. And he saves us. And uh, so the prodigal son is a picture of that whole sweep of salvation history. Um, it's, it's also really what we see in here in this little, beautiful, comforting and powerful Psalm, Psalm 23, as we march through um, the, the sixth verse chapter week by week, we're, we're doing one verse a week and we're in the fifth week. So we're looking at Psalm 23, five, which I'll read now. Uh, we've just walked out of death Valley and David says, now you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So really what we're seeing here is that our shepherd not only saves us from sin and death, which again, we're marching out of that, out of the valley and the trough of the Psalm, verse four, which is, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Uh, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So, so, he doesn't just remembering that verse. He, our shepherd does save us from sin and death. Thank God he does. But not just. He doesn't just save us from. He saves us for. He saves us for a life of favor and intimacy and bounty. Almost to an embarrassing degree are we, are we uh, lavished with these things that uh, pop their heads up in this psalm, in this verse, I should say. Um, so if David is, is sort of saved from a negative, and so are we, um, death in verse five, he walks out into this positive of just extravagant blessing that his shepherd turned, his shepherd turned um, something else, I would say, in this verse, um, lavishes upon him. And, and that's, that's the point I'll make here is that um, we're just going to look at three points, okay, briefly, favor and forgiveness. And, and I won't, well, okay, I'll say them all three right now. Favor and forgiveness, two, covenant loyalty, and three, kingship. Um, as we just walk through the psalm, the, the verse together. Um, but first, favor so I said, he's, Dave, God really becomes something other than shepherd here. Well, there's a transition. What do I mean by that? It's a transition. Verses one through four, it's definitely shepherd and sheep motif. Verses five and six, though, there's a, an unspoken transition. David starts talking about himself as a human. He sits at a table. He has enemies. Sheep don't really, I mean, they have enemies, but he has presumably human enemies, and uh, his head is anointed. You don't do that with oil. You're, you don't do that with sheep. And his cup overflows. 
sheep don't drink from cups. And, uh, and, and verse, verse six is, is more of the same. So there's just a transition here um, of motifs from shepherd and sheep to, to a human and really a father figure, um, a king that's, that's blessing David and that blesses us if we are in, in David um, through Christ, his greater son. So um, on this sort of unspoken transition from sheep to, to person, Derek Kidner comments, the sheep, the shepherd imagery, excuse me, the shepherd imagery has served its purpose to be replaced by one of greater intimacy. And I think that's right. It's, it's not just a walking out of uh, being saved from something into being saved for something, all this blessing being heaped on David. But if we sort of take a more um, perceptive look at what's happening, these, these, um, these things that God is blessing David with, a table being set, anointing of the head, the cup being offered, it's really a picture of intimacy, and we're going to talk about that, um, especially as we get into to covenant loyalty. Um, but on the idea that the connection, again, between verses 4 and 5, um, you know, in verse 4, David walks through death's shadow unscathed because why? His shepherd is with him. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Um, and there's more of the same here, isn't there? Even though we, sh- we change from the shepherd motif to the human, uh, David still, he's not out of danger. He's encircled by his enemies, but he, he still has nothing to fear because God is with him and God is, it's like takes the next step in extravagant blessing. God is not only with him and walking through him, through a, a scary place with him, he's now setting a table before him and piling it high with food and as it were, serving David, which we'll get to in a second, just extravagant picture of the favor of, unearned favor of God. But he's still encircled by enemies, but he refuses to fear, uh, his refusal to fear, excuse me, in verse four, advances to positive blessing. Um, God is waiting on him uh, on a table that God himself has set up in the wilderness, as it were, um, as David is encircled by his enemies. So again, uh, Derek Kidner just nails it. He says, it is one thing to survive a threat, which happened in verse four, as in verse four, quite another to turn it into triumph. So David goes from surviving to triumph. And that's the trajectory that God has for us in Christ in our lives. No matter where we are, we're headed somewhere good. We're not just we're not just delivered of peril, of the power of sin, of Satan, of death, and of hell, which we are. We're delivered into a far green country and uh, a, a table that's set for us in feasting and joy. Um, so, you know, um, we... We are all walking toward death. We don't need to fear. We are all surrounded by enemies, even if we don't know it. Um, we can't see it. Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that our, our um, battle isn't with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, and they are arrayed right against us. But then that, that thought takes me to, to Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews says that we are, however, also surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on with the author and perfecter of our faith, the archagon, the champion of our faith um, before us, who's gone, he's gone before us. He's tasted things that we won't have to, and we'll get to that. Um, so what does this mean? It means that um, 
you know, God is determined to bless us because of Christ in full view of all of our enemies. All will be able to see you are highly favored by the King if you are clothed in Christ by faith. So, so what does that mean for us practically? It means that we can let go of trying to prove ourselves, our identity, um, that we are loved. We can, we can let go of, of favor in this life because we are and shall be highly favored. Um, and, and, and truth will rise. And so we who hide in Christ by faith, we can just let go of trying to prove that in front of people, especially that seem to be our enemies or maybe are our enemies. Because this, this verse here, verse 5, is where every believer is headed. Um, so, like I said, this picture of blessing and bounty, I think this is kind of the, at the heart of um, the verse. It's just an extravagant picture to the point of being embarrassing. Um, why? Why is that? Well, part of it is just a cultural thing. Uh, um, Ken Bailey points out that in the ancient Near East, if a man wants to show his wealth... He, he doesn't buy big cars and houses like we do here in America. He shows it through his hospitality. He invites loads of friends over. He throws a party. He plies them with food from his table. And now that's the idea here. David is basically saying, look, I don't deserve any of this, but the richest person in the universe has decided to favor me, to share his wealth with me, and to show me his love and his kindness in front of the world in front of my enemies, even as I'm surrounded by my enemies and who can touch me if not only God is for me, but he's doing these things for me. Um, how do, how does David get this invite? How do we get this invite? We need to keep this question before us. It's certainly not through, um, our desserts. And I don't mean desserts like the things that follow the pastries that, that follow your entree. I mean what we deserve. It's certainly not through that. And we know that even in this, even in this psalm through the next verse, the last verse of the psalm, Psalm 6. We'll get there next week. But um, Okay, so David says, you prepare a table before me. All right, let's just start at the beginning of the verse here. You prepare a table before me. What does this mean? Again, sort of a little ancient Near Eastern context. Um, it doesn't mean that God is setting a table. Like my kids at night, they have the responsibility of setting the table, of putting down napkins and forks and cups. That's not what this means. Uh, it, it means a table means food and fellowship. Preparing a table um, in this milieu means food and it means fellowship, which mean rich things of their own that, that lead to. It talks. It talks to us about relationship, um, about God inviting us into His complete life. Um, it, it means that God, the picture here is of God not putting down napkins and forks, but um, preparing this table and putting heaps of food on it such that the oaken planks are creaking under the weight of the feast. And he's inviting David to sit and feast with him. Now, again, some more ancient Near Eastern uh, insight. Who prepares the table and why is this significant? Um, in this culture, the head of the house never sets the table or makes the food. Never. He gives orders for it to be done. Um, and there's nobody wealthier or more powerful than this master of the house, than God himself. But what does it say here? It says that God himself prepares the table for David and, and for us. And that is, it's really astonishing. It, it, it reminds me again of the prodigal son parable where the father runs out 
not only does he receive his son, he hikes up his, his robes, as it were, and runs out down the road in, in view of everybody. Um, patriarchs never ran. It was undignified. It was very undignified to receive his shameful, sinful son back with open arms, and that he does. That he does um, to the nth degree. So it's astonishing the humility, not only the kindness, but the humility of God. Um, that he would serve us, miserable sinners. Um, what's more, and what adds to this extravagance, is that God prepares the table right in front of David's enemies, right? Right in front of his enemies, right in front of their faces is what the Hebrew literally means. Um, I just, I don't know. It, it, is there more than a hint of taunting going on here or of, or of vindication? The idea that God will vindicate his own. You see that of his, he does that with his son, in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, in other places, the Christ hymn. Um, and this sort of thing runs like a river through David's, some of David's other Psalms, right? My enemies taunt me, but God will vindicate me. He will lift me up and crush them under his feet, that sort of thing. Um, how will this sense help us swallow the need to justify ourselves, especially with those who taunt us or hate us or say we're on the wrong side of history quote unquote, or wrong in some other way. Um, how will this help us when that happens? Knowing that God will show us ultimate favor and even go so far as to serve us in front of the faces of those who taunt and ridicule us in this life and who are our enemies. Um, we don't need to prove ourselves again. We can trust him. He will make all things right. Um, we don't need to prove ourselves. You know, we were God's enemies when Jesus died for us on the cross, and what did Jesus pray? Did he pray for God to crush us? No. Um, this, this can also help us not only worry about uh, not worry about our enemies who deride us, but pray for them and actively love them. Um, God did it with us, and he calls us to do the same with Christ in us. So, so is God taking sides here back to, you know, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Um, yeah, he's big time taking sides. He's preparing a feast purposefully right in front of David's enemies' faces. And it's a way of saying, I'm with him and I'm against you if you're against him. It's like he said to Abraham, right? Um, Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. I'm on his side. Just like you're on your kid's side, we become his children um, as we trust in him, right? Through through his word given to us, which is Jesus, through his own son, we become sons. Um, He's for his children. He favors us. I'm on his side, and because you're against him, you're against me, is what God's saying to all of the enemies of God's children. No matter how we're treated in this life, that's, that's the way it's going to end up. So he's also saying to, to the, our enemies, to David's enemies, this is bad news. It's bad news for you that I'm against you. And, and, and if I remember rightly in the, his reflections on the Psalm, C.S. Lewis says, man, this, this is a shame. This line, like you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's, he, he, he seems this is pretty shameless, actually. Um, like sort of an instance of David's taking his enemies' noses and rubbing, uh, rubbing them in, in the nasties. Um, But, you know, the next verse, as I touched on a second ago, verse 6, the last verse of the psalm, it helps us see 
that David realizes that he gets this treatment not because he's awesome, not through just desert, but through grace and mercy. That's in verse 6. Through grace and mercy. It's undeserved. It, it wasn't earned by David. It wasn't earned by us, but it was earned by another. It's the desert of David's greater son, Jesus, given to David and given to us by faith. Um, Croatian Yale scholar Miroslav Volf argues in, in, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, that believing that God will set things right and punish evildoers and let no injustice go in the end is the only thing that will actually keep us from taking matters into our own hands when we're truly wronged. When, we, when true injustice is done against us, the only thing that will keep us from revenge is while seeing that we were truly wronged and that what was done against us is, or against a loved one is evil. Um, the only thing that will keep us from taking matters in our own hands is believing God when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 32, 35. Um, Paul quotes that whole verse in Romans 12. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But what? So how's that possible, Paul? How do we never avenge ourselves? What if our whole family is burned in front of our eyes? He says, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So in other words, God is wrathful against sin and evil, and if it is not hidden in Christ by faith, it will be paid for and punished to the nth degree. Believing that God is not just a God of mercy, he's only a God of mercy in Christ, outside of Christ, perfect justice. Do you understand that? I think most Christians in America do not understand this, and this makes us petty Christians, feeling like we have to pay things back. We don't. Thank God he didn't pay things back with us, but he will for everyone who's not hidden in Christ. He will. That's one of the beautiful things about the book of Revelation. It's a terrifying book, but it's greatly heartening to those that are suffering, uh, the uh, followers of God, children of God that are suffering unjustly. We are more than conquerors. God will make all things right. He will pay back every evil, either in Christ or in us if we're outside of Christ. Those are the two options. Um, so Wolf is, you know, he's only saying what Paul told the Roman Christians 2,000 years ago. The early church took this to heart by and large, and they did not avenge themselves when they were truly wrong, sometimes to death, sometimes being fed to the lions, sometimes being lit up like tiki torches for Nero's parties in the 60s AD. Um, and the power that exploded outward, not from this revenge, but from leaving wrath and vengeance to God, the power that exploded outward from entrusting themselves to God and his perfect justice changed the ancient world. And it continues to change it to this day. And I just want to say, let it be so with us. Easier said than done, isn't it? Let it be so with us. Let us become expert in leaving vengeance to God. Not just when put in prison, but when choosing um, to not win the fight. So in smaller ways, with our neighbor or our spouse or a child or someone online, in choosing to go beyond not just uh, not winning, not in choosing to go beyond... Um, not winning, but also actively, as I said earlier, loving and serving our enemies as Christ has done for us. I want to read a, something from my mentor. He says, when you're wronged, it can be so painful. 
A colleague at work betrays you. A friend talks about you behind your back. A business partner cheats you. Your father never had time for you. A relative abused you. Your spouse had an affair and then left you. These betrayals hurt. You know, these are real things, true evils that truly hurt. We're not denying that, right? These betrayals hurt, he says. It's like you were stabbed in the back, and every time you remember the wrong, it's like you're turning the knife in your back, and you bleed a little more. Pretty soon, you become enslaved to bitterness and resentment. All joy and peace vanish. Your relationships with people around you turn sour. What do you do? The human instinct is to retaliate, to get even. Movie after movie glorifies the instinct for revenge. Gladiator, Braveheart, the Count of Monte Cristo, the Avengers, and many more. There was even a television show called Revenge. But God's way is different, he says. God's way is to overcome evil with good. Instead of retaliating, do good to the person. Forgive the person who wronged you. Bless them in some way. Forgiveness is so hard for us humans. It's the hardest work of love. I would also say it's the most powerful. But the refusal to forgive destroys you, uh, Jeff goes on. Frederick Beekner writes, Of all the deadly sins, resentment appears to be the most fun. To lick your wounds and savor the pain you will give back is in many ways a feast fit for a king. But then it turns out that what you're eating at the banquet of bitterness is your own heart. The skeleton at the feast is you. You start out holding a grudge, but in the end, the grudge holds you. That's Beekner. So that's why I wanted to just take this first point to say, you know, this psalm, this line, excuse me, Psalm 23, verse 5, this verse, it shows us the extravagant, unearned favor of God to, to David and to us through his son, Jesus. But it also, in showing us that, leads us to contemplate forgiveness and the forgiveness that we've been shown and the forgiveness that we can show in Christ alone, how powerful it can be. So, so favor and forgiveness. Um, point two, though, much more briefly, and point three, also very brief, and then a close. Um, covenant. So from favor and forgiveness to covenant. Uh, again, Kidner says, but the prospect is better than a feast. Talking about this verse. The prospect is better than a feast. We've been talking about the feast, really. But he says, in the Old Testament world, to eat and drink at someone's table, and now we're taking, it, we're taking this to the next level of meaning now. To eat and drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty. It could be the culminating token of a covenant. It was so in Exodus 24, 8 through 12, where uh, when the elders of Israel, quote, beheld God and ate and drank. And that was a covenant ceremony. It was so again, that Kidner says, at the Last Supper, when Jesus announced, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this isn't just a feast. It's also, if in its ancient Near Eastern milieu, which this, of course, was written in the ancient Near East um, by David uh, 3,000 years ago. In this milieu, it, it really has the trappings of and the symbols of a covenant ceremony, which is something that's even richer and far more binding than just sitting at table and having a feast with, with a king, with someone. Um, it's, it's a tryst. It is God bringing David in and bringing us in close and making promises to us. And he does that ultimately. Uh, he, he seals that promise with his own blood. And he says, come in and feast with me and be mine um, forever 
an intimate relationship. Um, and uh, you're going to be able to do that through my shed body, uh, through my, my torn body and my shed blood, excuse me. Um, and so it's a beautiful verse. It's an extravagant verse, but it came, it, we're, we're able, God is, we're able to have God serve us. We're able to receive this sort of unearned kindness and bounty because of the infinite cost that he came and paid himself in his life and in his death for us. So that, that's covenant. Uh, and we could press more into that. We could preach a series on it. We're not going to. We're just going to leave it as a second point here in this sermon on Psalm 23, 5. So we've looked at favor and forgiveness. We've, we've looked briefly, briefly at covenant. And then finally, I just want to finish with, with kingship. This verse tells us something not only about covenant and the intimacy there and the relationship there, but about kingship. Um, and again, just to, I think if you look at the, the verse and, the, and the, what's happening here, uh, the ingredients in it, the table, the, um, the anointing of the head and the cup, what we see is a picture of, of kingship. So we've considered the meal, the preparing of the table, um, but the meal and the head anointing and the cup overflowing with wine are all taken together, which is what they should be, right, in this verse. Is not, it's not just a picture of bounty and celebration. Um, and by the way, you anoint my head with oil is literally you make my head fat with oil. Um, Hebrew is a very concrete, very pictorial in a sense, very simple language, very earthy. And I love that. You make my head fat with oil. It's a picture of bounty and extravagance. So it's not just a picture of bounty and extravagance. It's a picture of, of sonship, but in that it's a picture of kingship. Um, and of course, David was anointed king. Um, so he can say this, but, but we are all of us in Christ God's sheep and God's children and children of the king are royalty. So the question is, is sort of, I posed toward the beginning of the talk, how are we rebels against God that we are? So it's easy to read this verse and just go, isn't that nice? But no, we need to ask, how can we be treated like this? If what the Bible says about us is true, which it is that we're rebels against God, how are we made sons and daughters and how are we invited to this table and how are we lavished with this sort of extravagance and anointed with the royal oil and offered the royal cup. This is really pictures of being, being um, royally dressed. Because the prince of heaven, Jesus, gave up his place at the table that was rightfully his, right? And served his apostles, served his disciples, served us by getting up from table and, and um, taking off his outer robe and taking the form of a servant and getting on his hands and knees and in, in taking the role of a servant and washing dirty feet and um, offering to them the bread and the wine and saying, this is my body and this is my blood, eat and drink. Um, he gave up his place at the table and he was given tears to eat, the dirt and the blood and the sweat of Gethsemane with his face in the ground and the sour wine of the cross. And because of that, we get to sit at table. And instead of oil on his head, um, he was anointed, he was anointed, excuse me, with a crown of sharp thorns. We get anointed with oil on the head because he had a crown of sharp thorns pressed on his. I've, um, incidentally, I've, I've reached up at the wailing wall and, and taken, um, a, a shard 
of, uh, of, of thorns, of the thorns that grow out of the Wailing Wall that's, of course, right there um, beneath the Temple Mount, uh, super close to where Jesus was crucified, and uh, very possibly the very sorts of thorns that they used to press into his head, and boy, are they sharp. Um, but these thorns, this crown, they pressed deeply into his head, drawing blood that ran down his face. While we got, while we we get the oil on our heads, running down our faces, enriching us, making us glisten, and blessing us, and certainly a sign of royalty because he got the curse. That's what the thorns. That's what the thorns symbolized, right? And instead of the royal cup of wine. He drank the white-hot wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath poured out against our sin and evil. So we drink his cup of wine. We're anointed with the salve of his oil for our heads. And we sit at the table to feast with the king of kings. What uh, we got, what he had by rights and gave up to gain us. To bless us with, with a bounty that's extravagant, as we've been saying, to the point of being, being embarrassing. So because of that, because of that, we can love and bless and serve others, even our enemies with extravagant kindness and the security of sons, love without condition. I want to close with a story that Lewis Smedes tells. Um, it's a story on forgiveness in, in, his, uh, in his book, Forgive and Forget. A South African woman stood in an emotionally charged courtroom listening to white police officers acknowledged the atrocities they'd perpetrated in the name of apartheid. Officer Vandebroek acknowledged his responsibility in the death of her son. Along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. He and the others partied while they burned his body, turning it over and over on the fire until it was reduced to ashes. Eight years later, Vandebroek and others arrived to seize her husband. So they, roast, they literally roasted her 18-year-old son on a spit. This is me interjecting. On a spit and partied while they did it. Eight years later, they show up for her husband. They seize him. And this is, this is Smeeds again. A few hours later, shortly after midnight, Vandebroek came to fetch the woman. He took her to a woodpile where her husband lay bound. She was forced to watch as they poured gasoline over his body and ignited the flames that consumed his body. The last words she heard her husband say were, forgive them. Now, Vandebroek stood before her awaiting judgment, Smeeds writes. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked her what she wanted. I want three things, she said calmly. I want... Mr. Vandebroek to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I would like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Second, Mr. Vandebroek took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Vandebroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like someone to lead me to where he is seated so I can embrace him and he can know my forgiveness is real. As the elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Vandebroek fainted, overwhelmed. 
Someone began singing Amazing Grace. Gradually, everyone joined in. Wow. Now, where does... (laughs) Where does that sort of extravagant, breathtaking forgiveness come from? It comes from Christ, and only from Christ, who said, Father, forgive them, as he hung on the wood that we placed him on. He forgave us of far more, if we can believe it. Like this beautiful woman, he still has a lot more love to give And he wants to give it to us and through us to others.